0: Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYourSixCoffee.com, 6 where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee, why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country. Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted, award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Ben King. Ben is the founder of Down and the Mindful Memorial Day Foundation. Ben served in Iraq as a psychological operations sergeant in the United States Army. During that time, he was the chief of a three-man tactical psyops team. He didn't fully realize the psychological effects of his deployment, and it was nearly ten years after his return that he began to realize his trauma. It was while confronting his own post-traumatic stress that he began his mission and journey with Armor Down. I've been looking forward to connecting with Ben and discussing his insights into how mindfulness contributes to our ability to be resilient. Ben, welcome to Get Up Nation. Thanks, Ben. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be speaking with you, sir. Where do you currently live and work? We'll start with that.
1: Sure. I'm in essentially Richmond, Virginia, just south of Richmond, downtown Richmond in a uh, kind of an area called Midlothian, Midlothian, Virginia. I grew up in Richmond. I grew up on, in a, on a place called Church Hill. And if anybody's familiar with, you know, kind of older American history, it, Churchill's the hill where Patrick Henry's gave the famous give me liberty or give me death speech. So I grew up there. I've grown up in and around Richmond for the first major developmental chunk of my life, then uh, ended up moving overseas for a little while, then came back, went to university in Washington, D.C., spent another huge chunk of my life in Washington, D.C., went to Iraq, came back to live in Washington, D.C., and then had uh, To take care of my mother as she moved on after ALS, help out with my family, moved to Richmond, and now we're digging in roots in Richmond. So it's <laughs> been kind of an interesting circle, but back in Richmond,
0: right, right, excellent. All right, and will you share a little bit about what led to your decision to join the military?
1: Ultimately, I wanted to prove myself and be someone who could be tough and admired and happy. And I thought that the way to do that was to be as much of a badass as I could be. And I, I thought a lot about this a lot. So I was born in 1980. And so, and when I was 16, 17, 18, or 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, think about those teenage years, what was happening in society in the, in the, in the early, and later nineties, right? What movies were coming out, right? And so the the people that really influenced my idea of what like a a, like a strong man was Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) Sylvester Stallone, (laughs) Van Damme, Jean-Claude Van Damme, those movies. Remember Cobra? Remember Clint Eastwood, he was a little bit, he was still, I mean, he was, he was still in there, but he got, he got real big in the, in the 2000s. Remember, uh, or not, not, excuse me, Chuck Norris, Bruce Willis. So this was the presentation on the big screen, right. Of, you know, how, how do I be this, this guy? Right? right. Well, my, the reason why I was really trying to figure it out was trauma. My brother died in a freak drowning accident when I was 10 years old. And what, what trauma did for me was create this massive black hole that anything that was positive, anything that was grounded, anything that was stable, the black hole just sucked it all in hmm. and created this massive absence. And, I, and so I tried to fill that absence and make myself invulnerable. I really worked hard to try to figure out how to do that and be a badass, be a warrior. That's, that was where my heart was. And so I I did it all. You know, I did, I was, I became a boy scout. I became an Eagle scout. I played football. I became the captain of the football team. I joined a fraternity to be with the guys. And then ultimately the next extension was the military. So that's, that's in a nutshell why I joined the military.
0: To the degree that you're comfortable, would you share some about your experience overseas or, you know, some of the things that you experienced there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So 99% of my experience overseas was kind of living the warrior dream. Like My job was psychological operations, which meant that we had to be the middle, the middle people between units that we were attached to and between the frontline units and the local Iraqis. So I got to go out every day with different companies of our battalion and work with them, support them in different ways. But most of the time we ended up facilitating engagement between the frontline troops and the local Iraqis. So I was I was very much engaged with the culture. I was very much engaged with the interpreters. So 99% of the time was that, just being a warrior, being, being in the hierarchy of the military, having a job that was valued, working at a high level, working at a high level of battle rhythm, like feeling all that stuff, getting all that stuff, meeting colonels who you were just like, wow, they know everything. How does a colonel know everything? Meeting, you know, sergeants and master sergeants and first sergeants who are just as badass as you ever could have imagined they would be, you know, meeting soldiers from all over the world or all over the country, just seeing how being in a combat zone with other folks and just doing your job and how cool that was and how... You know, how little you had to worry about stuff like paying rent or healthcare or, you know, all those stuff that typically consumes a civilian life, that was all gone. And so then there was the combat element. So the combat element was very invisible and would just show up like that. So I was in Iraq in 2006 and 2007, and that was during the beginning or the early years right before the surge. And so 2006 and 2007 was a really bad time because we were just getting smoked by IEDs. So it was a constant threat and you couldn't see it and you couldn't really fight it. So it was very tricky. And so what would happen is we would just be kind of going about our day and then there'd be some kind of explosion or some kind of catastrophic event. And so that would you know, be things like just all of a sudden start getting mortared. Or having massive explosions go, on, go off outside the gate. You know, the kind of explosions that shook the whole base. A sniper fire every once in a while. And then, on, and then a couple instances, and this was like maybe only three or four instances, were really close calls. One was a, a, a rocket coming in and landing, and we were standing here. So the rocket exploded that way. So if, if we had been standing here, the rocket would have exploded right into us. We just happened to be under the arc of the rocket I and mean, just having that just, poof, and then being like, take cover, take cover, get out of cover, all clear. All right, let's go on mission. <laughs> so it was just, just constant. The main experience for me, and this is what Uncle Sam gave me a purple heart for, was on New Year's Eve of 2006. We took a direct hit from an IED, a a special type of IED called an EFP, which is an explosively formed projectile. Trump killed the guy, Suleiman, who is the Iranian kind of mastermind behind behind that. But part of the reason why he became infamous was because his ability to get these EFPs into Iraq and then the EFPs cut through whatever armor we had. Didn't matter if it was a Bradley, didn't matter if it was an up-armored Humvee, it just cut right through them. So on New Year's Eve at around 10:30 I was driving the truck the truck got hit it was is aimed directly at me and but for the grace of God I survived and that you know that's a pretty pretty wild story but I'll maybe go into some other time but anyway that was the main that was the main experience in terms of like engagement with the enemy it was an invisible enemy it was largely Something that you couldn't see or experience or fight against, you just had to kind of endure. After the IED, I spent about a week in the hospital, kind of main hospital area in the Green Zone, and then went back to my base and was back on mission. You know, several days later, but by that time, in my mind, right in my mind, I realized I had like I felt like I did it. Right, it's like okay, you wanted to prove yourself, you wanted to be this warrior. How do you do it? How do you prove yourself? Well your government gives you a medal for surviving enemy contact in a direct way. And so I felt like I had done it. I really did. And so I came back from Iraq, really feeling a sense of pride and accomplishment for having served my country with honor, facing the enemy straight on and, you know, moving forward. So I came back really with a really positive vibe, and money in my pocket, and it was good to go.
0: The things that create post-traumatic stress, that feeling of helplessness and that feeling of terror or, or sheer horror fused together at the same moment, the mention of an invisible enemy that would surface at any point with lethality and just surfacing at any point. So an uncontrolled situation, it makes a lot of sense. And, and like you were saying, the IEDs, how many, how many service members spent their days driving around just hoping that the road would not explode underneath them. And all of those, I remember as far as my service, it was like we were shown videos of service members getting blown up like all the time during training and saying, you know, watch for this, 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 this. And it's like an unending. And then when you get out on the roads in Iraq, it's like every five feet that there is something that could have an IED.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. A really great explanation of what that experience is like a really great explanation of, you know, your experience and going into that and your background. Really appreciate you sharing all of that. It's, it's got to resonate with every, everybody who has served during that time frame. And also, if we could go into how you started to understand the effects of trauma on you and what led to your discovery of mindfulness, if we could go into that.
1: Yeah, sure. So what started to happen was my body started to kind of deteriorate and my ability to manage the deterioration failed over and over and over again. And so by what I mean was when I got back from Iraq, I really, we really just, we went, we flew into Fort Bragg. We had about two weeks of kind of out-processing. And then I remember they were like, well, if you, if you want to stay for another week, you'll get an extra, you know, 300 bucks or something like that. Otherwise you can just go. And I, we were, unit and so I was just like later <laughs> so we got got, in, got into my buddy's vehicle and he drove me to my parents' house in Richmond and I was just like, later man, so I was out I just I mean I still had to do reserve stuff, but I was just that was it and so I came home and for the first it was that was the eight, that was April so by by May and June, you know I was just chilling I mean I was just traveling doing whatever I wanted, having a great time I didn't have family I didn't have kids to worry about. Everyone was treating me with a really really high you know, level of respect and appreciation so everything was really good and then what started to happen was I just started experiencing a lot of pain everywhere and I started feeling just a huge amount of pain in my back and my shoulders and it was constant I was constantly moving and adjusting I never I could' never sit still and and my mind was would go into these just like just spin up and and what What really started to do it, what really kind of put the nail in the coffin was when I had all these problems sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so it really felt like I was being pulled backwards all the time. I always felt this sense of like, it was always, it always felt like my body was like pulling me. And it never occurred to me that my body armor, wearing it all front loaded, would have an impact on my spine. Never, that never occurred to me. But anyway, my body kept falling apart. And all the normal resources I typically use for managing my body and motivating myself all stopped being effective. So I trained CrossFit before CrossFit was cool. You know, remember back in the day when CrossFit was go to this website and look at the little list of shit to do and just do it. So that's what we did. And that's what all the warriors were doing back in the day. And so it was very effective. And so all the training that led into Iraq was very effective. But when I got back from Iraq, any attempt to, to use that training to be useful as a civilian was a total failure. I wasn't motivated to do it and I just hated it. It was just like, ugh, why am I going to push myself this hard? I'm I'm not going back to Iraq anytime soon. But I just kept having problems with sleeping. And when I couldn't sleep and I was having issues with not feeling my best and not knowing how to motivate, part of the way I compensated that was through self And when the self-medication would work on it would work well you know but it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't very good and i wasn't managing any of the problems that i was starting to feel and the feelings that were growing inside of me and the anxiety and the emotional outburst stuff just became very very consistent it was a uh, it was a daily kind of challenge that would just be overwhelming like shaking overwhelming like what the fuck is going on overwhelming? What? Oh my God. Like just like, I'd be having conversations with people and like, like in between the words I was saying, I would have these, like, like I'd be confronted with all this stuff. It was like, there was this layer of stuff that was just boom pounding in. And then when the sleep stopped happening, it oh, yeah. would it like come together in my mind. So I would close my eyes and it'd be like, it'd be like staring into a light bulb. So I'd be closing my eyes, but I would be staring into a light bulb and I'd be like, "I there's no way in hell I'm going to sleep. Wow. And then I'd start to project into the future of what it would mean for another night of not sleeping. Oh, yeah. And then it's like three and four days of not sleeping. And then what really started to develop was this massive kind of meltdown issue. And so I would, I would basically end up like balled up in a corner crying, hyperventilating, not understanding what was going on. And then because I couldn't understand what was going on, I would develop these grand being a liar and a fraud. And, you know, everything, I put everything into just getting through the day, but it was just, it was bad. And I would, I would be able to, I got kind of proficient at having something happen and then just spinning up and up and up and up and up and up and, mm-hmm. up and get really, really, really just hugely agitated. Mm-hmm. And I remember the the feeling was one of, I can either break shit or I can kind of like go into a hole. Mm-hmm. And so I, would, I would go into these holes and they would be the, they'd be pretty pathetic. I mean, like they kind of like sobbing in the corner, like snot dripping. My face. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that was kind of when I was like, okay, I'm in bad state here. The very first thing that had a positive impact was actually yoga. Mm-hmm. And with my body, that really afforded me a way to kind of manage what was going on in my head. So I remember I took a yoga class at like an 11 o'clock class at the gym. It was like me and a bunch of soccer moms. And the yoga teacher was super cool. And her name, her name was Jewel, Jewel Greenberg. And she was just really cool about, you know, teaching me yoga. And and she kind of like, like I was such a cliche, dude. Like I was, I was the guy that was, you know, riding a motorcycle. I got bought a motorcycle after Iraq and like, you know, just (laughs) living on edge and all that shit. I'm riding a motorcycle to my yoga class. (laughs) 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 Such a cliche. I mean, I mean. I modeled my I modeled my identity off of movies. So what's I mean, what's more cliche than that? And so so I started taking yoga and the way I realized yoga worked was twofold. One, I was used to no pain, no gain. And my body my body only really responded to like negative stimulus or alcohol or like porn, like self-stimulation type stuff. Any nuance other than that type of stuff was like didn't feel it. It just didn't show up, didn't register. So with yoga, certain things started to register. Like I felt my shoulder blades for the first time. Like seriously, with, with regards to exercise, exercise, the only purpose of exercise was to get a higher PT score and to look a particular way. Mm -hmm. It was big shoulders. It wasn't about what my shoulder, what comprised my shoulders or my shoulder blades. It was just stronger, bigger, better looking. And so I was in the yoga class and Jules said, all right, I want you to breathe your shoulder blades up and exhale your shoulder blades down. And I did. And I felt this kind of flush of pleasurable feeling through my shoulders. I was like, oh, what's that? Oh, more of that. And then when I got home that night, I slept pretty well. So that was like, oh, I don't care if I'm the only guy in the yoga class. I don't care at all. I just want to sleep better because when I slept better, my mind was less. Active, right. and I was more optimistic. Everything felt a little bit brighter. Yeah, that was okay, uh, and that was some progress. But as my life got more kind of kind of full, other triggers would just send me into these terrible, terrible downward spirals, and I just couldn't understand what was going on. And so I kept kind of like getting stuck in my own thinking, and I, I start to anticipate the situation, and then I would project from the situation into the future. And so I was never actually addressing what was going on. I was just maintaining this constant narrative, which downrange was called hypervigilance and threat assessment and was very smart and strategic. But at home, it was kind of a manic, kind of a devastating, confusing, Kind of mess and I remember I remember I would get songs stuck in my head and it would just be this constant like whirring of sounds and like just confusion and then when it got really bad it would well, what would happen what I was called slam sounds and that was everything I heard wasn't just uh, the sound it was the sound times slamming into my head and so I would hear like a siren and the siren would like Go off in the background, but in my head, the siren would become huge, and it would just go,
0: woof, woof, woof.
1: and then my voice in my head would start to slam the sounds. Very, very disorienting. It was kind of terrifying. It made me It made me think that there was something inside of me that was that was really just dark and and scary. And that was when kind of the suicidal ideation started to develop. Because when you're in the and you're when you're Analyzing the past and projecting into the future, all your systems are shot, you're not sleeping, and you're using self-medication. What develops is a perfect recipe for the worst version of yourself, which I would—I refer to as my demon, would come out and be like, I can fix it for you. Mm. I can fix this for you. Mm. Just listen to me. And it was, I, I, I visualized it as beneath me, like in my stomach. So it was like looking up and it was just like this, I I can fix this. Wow. So the, the conversation around firearms and suicide is an important one to have, because I remember my tactical proficiency was, was solid. It's Mm. just what I put that on was where my mind went. So I'm in my worst state possible. And this little voice is saying, I can fix it. Right. And what my what does my tactical knowledge do? Well, what's the easiest way to fix this problem? we well, just shut it down. Well, how do we shut it down? Your HK USP 45 right in the closet. Right. It's so easy. Yeah. It's so easy. Yeah. And so that, that conversation would show up in my head. And when that conversation would show up in my head, the other parts of me, the the parts of me that still had the sparks of love and the sparks of joy would start to like bang on. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. no, but it was small. And in the dark side, the dark authority is what i called it, would just kind of be like, "Mm -hmm." Mm -hmm. and so I was slowly making progress with yoga. I had started to see that it was very useful. And I had started to think, how can I share this with other service members in a way that wouldn't be so off-putting because the yoga world it's ironic the yoga world and the crossfit world developed in parallel with each other Mm. but the crossfit world was of course language to the warrior the yoga world of course was language toward the healer so anyway those two worlds were kind of evolving simultaneously and i was like well how do i be the bridge to that and so that's where the the idea of the blog armor down came from because it started to started to make sense to me that wearing body armor all front loaded would have an impact on my spine Mm -hmm. and when i realized that it kind of hit me i was like oh we used to take off the armor off the humvees in order for them to to be useful because otherwise their chassis would bend their Mm -hmm. frames would just not be able to hold up under the weight so you take that armor off the up armored humvee and it has much more use in a, in a civilian context. So that's where the name Armor Down came from. And so when I started to realize the structural elements of my body, I started talking about that on the Armor Down blog. And then just by kind of luck, I ran into somebody in, who I hadn't seen in a long time, and her name was Arlene. And she said, Hey, Ben, good to see you. Blah, blah, blah. We were in the grocery store, and I was telling her about Armor Down as the blog and this, that, and that. She said, well, Hey, have you tried mindfulness meditation? I said, Well, I mean, I've heard of it, but I've not really tried it. And she's like, well, I know the teacher who teaches it at Walter Reed or at the VA in the the Washington DC VA, I'll connect you. And I was like, okay, sure. So that was like a Monday. She connected me with the teacher on Tuesday and I was at, I was at the VA, the DC VA on Thursday morning. And when I went through the experience, it really was a mind blowing experience because it was so simple. Basically what the the guidance was was simply to pay attention to different things. Pay attention to what you hear, pay attention to what you feel. And then it was notice your right thumb, notice your left thumb, you know, and these these just boom, 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 boom. And what I experienced as I was going through this this really simple kind of guidance was I could actually feel my mind go from here to here here and two things happened very quickly one was i realized i'm not my mind yeah right Woo. yep two was if i'm not my mind then i can influence my mind mm. and i was like that's significant right and when that happened i mean that that moment is in, is is sometimes articulated as enlightenment ego death whatever all of those those words are largely just so you can think about it but in the actual experience what happened was i started to now recognize that there was a time when i was present or aware of what was going on and then there were times when i was not mm-hmm. and so what happened was all of a sudden out of 10 moments I would recognize one moment of awareness and nine moments of just whatever. And then I started to, I would start to recognize, Oh my gosh, I'm, I have literally been lost in whatever the heck for the past nine moments. Let me, let me find that one again. Mm. And then over time and with practice, and that's where I guess the conversation is leading with practice. What has happened is that started to switch so instead of, One to nine, it was two to eight, and then three to seven, and then four to six, and then five to five, and then six to four, and so now it's it's more often that I am absolutely one hundred percent present with what's going on, and what happens then is all the layers, all the layers of what it means to be human start to become further and further within my wheelhouse so that that means that I now have more agency over them, meaning I can choose how to respond. And then as that develops, the next stage is then, okay, what happens in a very fast, kinetic, complex, dynamic environment with a whole lot of different stimulus? Can I still be present in that? What would that even mean? Like, What would it mean to be present in that? And that was when I really started the practice of the art of peace. And what that established was a ground and a framework that the awareness that mindfulness afforded me could be really applied in a strategic, a formatic, and non-formatic way. And that was when things really started to evolve and I could actually see, oh, I can get back to being this warrior, but the warrior shows up in, as the, in the art of peace mm-hmm. as opposed to the warrior in the arts of war. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's kind of where everything kind of came to now.
0: Amazing. Okay, let's get into Mindful Memorial Day and how you're taking all of this that you've experienced and creating a finer world.
1: So, the first challenge that we faced when trying to get the warrior community to see the value in the practice of mindfulness was how to reach out. So, this is 2010, 11, 12, okay, when I'm, I'm, I'm starting to have some positive growth here. So, there's some post traumatic growth happening. And so, this mindfulness stuff was just so accessible, it was being taught at the VA. So, I said to the teacher, her name was Karen Soltis. I said, Karen, how do you, you know, what do you think about getting this out to more people? I can record your conversation and connect it to what's called a QR code. And then we could just give this out and people can have access to it and be super easy. Well, she thought that was a great idea. So we got her recording. We attached it to a QR code. And then the plan was to give it away at the VA. Well, the VA, of course, couldn't promote one therapy over another. So they said, "Now we can't do it. So we had all these QR codes on these flyers, and we had the money to kind of put it all together. So like, what are we going to do? And so it was right around Memorial Day, and I, I was in DC at the time, so I knew lots and lots of veterans were going to be on the mall. So we decided to let's create a mindful Memorial Day. So we had these little flyers. I got eight volunteers, and we handed out these flyers. And our basic position was this, hey, warrior, check this stuff out. Science says it's really good for helping you sleep. Scan this QR code. You don't have to give any information. It's free. Just try it. And so we gave out about ten thousand of these things, and we had about a thousand people scan the QR code, and you know, maybe maybe twenty of them actually listened to it. And so we we were able to get this data and and kind of look at it, and that gave us some indicators of yeah, it's okay, blah blah blah. But what we found was that we were trying to connect to the warrior through the wrong part. So what we were doing was we were trying to connect to the warrior's head through science. Hey, warrior, rationalize this. Sleep's a hard thing. Science says this is good. It'd be an easy sell. Well, what we found is it wasn't. The science did not serve as the proper way in. And so we said, well, what, what would serve as the proper way in? How do you give something value to a warrior who probably perceives the thing itself as having no relationship to them or their identity in any way, shape, or form. And so that was when the idea of, well, if we're honoring the fallen, we could attach mindfulness to that. What if we made the relationship between mindfulness and warriorship and tied it to the act, the individual moment of honoring a fallen service member? And so that was when the idea of a mindful moment of gratitude was developed. And so then the the conversation became pretty easy. It was like, here's a perfect example of what, what happened. We were essentially encouraging people over Memorial Day to practice a mindful moment of gratitude. And I remember this one guy was walking up and he was totally stereotypical. He had a flannel shirt. He had a pack of Marlboro Reds in his breast pocket. He had a big belt buckle. He had on jeans and he had on some old boots. Right. So, you know, this guy, I think his hat even had, I think he even had a Ford hat on. Right. Classic. Right. So I said, Hey, sir, you want to honor a fallen warrior with a mindful moment of gratitude. He's like, son, I don't do that yoga stuff. And I was like, sir, it's not yoga. We, we just think that when you honor a fallen service member, you should do it with your undivided attention. He's like, well, I I agree. And I was like, well, you want to try it? And he's like, well, what do I got to do? Like, what's about 90 seconds? Just sit here. He's like, all right. So I take him through the process and the armor Down protocol has been the same ever since. First, we focus the mind on the senses to bring the mind in the present moment. Second, we'd send the mind through the awareness of the body. And then third, we emphasize breathing. And then fourth, we emphasize an intention. So the intention there was a mindful moment of gratitude. So I took him through the protocol and When I said to him, I was like, okay, now take two more breaths. And on your third exhale, you're done. This is about 90 seconds. That dude just was totally just send out just as quiet as he could be. And I remember I had to tap him on the shoulder. I was like, sir, it's over. And he was like, whoa. So what that did for us was that was like, oh, well, maybe instead of trying to connect the people through their heads, we should connect through their heart. Mm -hmm. And so that was really where everything kind of shifted. And our focus shifted, and so from there we kind of imp- really emphasized this hearts, this heartfelt connection. And so mo- uh, Memorial Day, mindful Memorial Day, has continued since every single year. And then we were even able to pull it off this year. While we didn't have people in in the Women's Memorial at Arlington like we usually do, uh, the Women's Memorial requested that we put up a presentation of our yellow ribbons. So we did. But then we honored the names by doing it all virtual and that was incredible to go to so if you ever get a chance go to the mindful memorial facebook page or excuse, yeah mindful memorial facebook page and you'll see all the people offering mindful moments of gratitude on video it's really really neat so that was cool what developed outside of memorial day was our understanding that hey the way forward is not through the head it's through the heart and so we really started to develop the language of armor down mindfulness by tying it to the language of marksmanship. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is we've taken all the things in the military that are kind of organized around marksmanship, discipline, and military bearing, and we've showed the warrior community that, hey, you already know how to do this stuff. Here's how to reapply it in the proper context to your civilian lifestyle. And so that's been very effective. And so we've been able to grow. And then with the pandemic, we've been able to turn it all into Zoom-based programs. And so that's been very effective. And then finally, the Armored Down Meditation Cushion has really been effective in making this kind of non-physical practice physically based. So the first conversation is not on well, what's mindfulness going to do for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The first conversation is on, well, what's this meditation cushion? So this meditation cushion is awesome. And oh, if you buy one, we're able to give one away. And we were able to give one away because you bought one. And so then the conversation is, why don't you make a little bit of a commitment to this practice? Well, how do you commit to it? Well, buy one of our cushions. Well, why would I want to do that? Well, it's really high quality. It'll last you for your entire life. And oh, by the way, when you buy one, we get to give one away to a veteran. So it's like a a twofer, you know, it's like a, it's kind of a commitment to meditation. It's a cushion that you can sit on. It's really nice. Anyway, you can actually use it as a pillow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you also get to give one away. So you get to be altruistic. So it's a very easy initial conversation. So now Armor Down really just teaches mindfulness to the warrior community and sells meditation cushions.
0: I love it. Now, I was watching some of your content recently, and one concept that like resonated profoundly with me is when you're speaking some about the Black Lives Matter movement and how post-traumatic stress can cause intense reactions when triggered. It spoke to the truth that children growing up in poverty can often mm-hmm. experience post-traumatic stress and chronic stress. Mm-hmm. First responders who risk their lives on the streets can see firsthand, you know, every day they see the horrors of this life and have a lot of vicarious trauma themselves if it's not directly on them as chronic stress or, or post-traumatic stress. And then veterans who have experienced military sexual trauma or combat often develop post-traumatic stress as well. But I loved how you articulated and you focused on the reality that this experience that's shared by all of these groups can lead to profound unity, empathy, and growth and can truly help all people who have endured violent and destructive environments to transition into greater health and healing. And it really is something that I'm really focused on is really, especially with the idea of suicide prevention, is really realizing, you know, this can be overwhelming as people experience this. I think of your detailed description of what you are experiencing, what a lot of veterans out there who may be watching experience daily and are drinking heavily to try to control it or, you know, using other substances to medicate. But what I have such honor and respect for you for what you're doing here is you're helping people see the opportunity within this and how it can truly lead to a societal altering reality that messages and realities that exist now, by focusing on this, can be transformed into a society that is so much more self-aware, that is so much more mentally healthy, that prevents suicide, that leads us to really, really healthy relationships and experiences and work so could you talk a little bit about those concepts and where you see our world as a result of this being given?
1: You know, the, the Taoist yin and yang symbol is very appropriate in that it recognizes the, the light inside the dark and the dark inside the light. And the, the reality is, is they, they feed each other. And so for I think for a long time in Western society, the, the conversation was around how do you get to the pinnacle and stay there which is this kind of materialistic kind of clear path you know boom get to here everything's fine the problem with that is it's just not true in order to maintain it you basically have to shut parts of yourself off right and the problem with shutting parts of yourself off is that your your biology has to get certain things in order to operate at a high level, we, human beings are intrinsically vulnerable. It is it is to be human is to be vulnerable. I mean that is that is what makes the human existence worth being human for. I mean if you're if you're a believer in our divine nature, you know part of the reason why we we're not in a divine state all the time is because in a divine state there's no vulnerability. And what would that what would that offer as in terms of like evolution and growth or change? Right. So that's what the human experience is. And so what we've experienced by virtue of our power, especially as Americans and by virtue of our privilege, and I'm speaking in particular about the white male privilege, what we experienced by our power was a kind of a mythical kind of ideal, you know, and it's, it's kind of weird. because. I'm seeing the, the basic structure of that myth kind of originates in Richmond, Virginia. I mean, those are the, the, the capital of the Confederacy was Richmond. The monuments to this ideal kind of position are all falling apart, which is absolutely appropriate because it was a myth. But the power of that myth was sustained for a long time. What that myth is breaking apart and what PTSD does and what trauma does is it opens that vulnerability hole similar to the way it opened up for me when my brother died and even further when the IED struck is that hole opened up. Now, what happens when the hole opens up and you're just stuck without any resources, you just get worse and you just develop more and more kind of maladaptive strategies for how to handle it. And so when you have to break all those strategies apart and rebuild them. It's very difficult. And that's part of where the suicide comes from. We saw the exact same thing happen with the warriors from Iraq. See, The the thing that happened in Iraq is a lot of people didn't experience any combat at all. There's very, very small amount of people in Iraq experienced direct combat. But what they did experience was the disruption and the disorder of being in that environment and then coming back home. And so what happened was delayed onset PTSD and then all these little things started to build up. They weren't prepared to handle, started developing into really bad coping mechanisms. And then about five years go by and then what happens is a traumatic event happens or whatever and all those coping mechanisms are totally ineffective for managing the situation. And then that little evil voice, that dark authority, which is in all of us, right? There's darkness in all of us, just yep. like there's light in all of us, shows up and you don't know how to handle it. And then then you get hit with COVID or something like that. And so now you're basically just stuck. So all this is to say that the trauma that we're experiencing COVID at the same time as the old paradigm is dying. Mm -hmm. All these things are happening to all of us on a global level. Like if you don't think, that the white supremacy lost cause narrative that was nurtured and developed in the United States since 1877. Okay. If you don't think that had a profound impact on the the rest of the world, you're, you're mistaken. America set the tone. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now what we have is we have all those structures, every last one. All the way down to our currency, you know, Bitcoin and stuff going on there is not an accident, right? This balance is always happening. Like I said earlier, yoga and CrossFit develop yep. at the same time. So it's not, it's not surprising that technology, practices like mindfulness, the ability to share them in this fashion, all this other kind of stuff kind of is evolving the same way as everything else is devolving. Right. Now we're still in the devolving state where everything is just breaking apart. I mean, it's just happening faster and faster and faster. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's yep. sad, terrifying, It's ungrounding, scary. So all that's happening right now, but what's going to come out of it? Cause there is no choice. There is no choice, but to become proficient at the management of your internal environment. There's no choice. This morning on this morning's Art of Peace practice, I described COVID-19 as the greatest mental health crisis of all time. Mm. Other pandemics have been very physical. You know, it's really been something that you get this disease and in a couple of days, you're either dead or you're barely surviving. Well, COVID's different. COVID is just like Iraq. COVID's got a, a pretty high survivability rate. I think it's like above 90%. I mean, most people survive COVID. Right. But, we don't, but we don't know what the long-term effects are. We don't know where it is in the country because now it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. We've got all this uncertainty about it. And so yep. it's just deadly enough to make you scared. Yep. And because that's the case, and because all of our normal structures and foundations are falling apart, people are really, really struggling. Where do we turn? Where do we turn to for grounding? What right. grounding is, is essentially what sleeping does grounding gives you a chance to settle for all your parasympathetic systems yep. to rev up and to rejuvenate you and to fix your cells and all the damage that takes place during the day you've got a part of your body that fixes all that stuff at night so that's what a, a grounded position is you, it's like a green zone you can't you cannot have these things happen to you inside of you without being in a grounded space. Well, what do you do with all of the ground, all of it, to include the whole white supremacy narrative, right? It was a narrative that was solid, because very solid, and it supported a hierarchy, right? And that hierarchy is fundamentally flawed on countless levels, but it was a hierarchy nonetheless that people could rely on and that structure was sustained now that structure including the story so the physical the mental and the bigger picture the spiritual side of that story is all falling apart mm-hmm. so now where are we? where are we so 5 years from now so 2025 we can expect to see an even greater surge in suicides than we saw after Iraq and that's going to, it's going to be civilian based so there's no it used to be the veteran had a unique role in society. We, we were the ones that saw this this space of death, the potential for death at every turn. Well, we kind of see it now as an as an entire global society. Mm. And so that level of disruption is going to demand the other side to come up and develop. And that's really where people like you and I play an important role is because we've We've basically seen what this type of thing does, and now we've kind of worked our way through it. And so now it's our job to be leaders in this new space.
0: I can't express enough how grateful I am for this conversation and this connection and your knowledge and your expertise here and what you're doing in this world. I cannot say highly enough how much I respect you and what you are creating and who you are and... I am so excited for the gains that we'll be making here to help people enjoy a life experience that is profound and full of gratitude, full of unity, full of empathy, full of all of these destructive processes that are happening. I am so honored that there is an answer, that there is something we can do, and that it's profound, and that it is is strong. I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, you described combat for your your experience, the rocket going this way, you being here, that it immediately suddenly occurring. You're doing your mission, and at any point during the day, something would explode. And then you're talking about the transition from that experience into the civilian world. There's COVID suddenly arrived over here, Aunt Julie suddenly has COVID. How did she get it? She went. Well, she's been home all day, but she went to the gas station once or twice. Like now, civilians, I think largely of like nurses. Who are going to work every day? They are taking on, you know, they're experiencing that life threat, that lethality, that thing that veterans used to only experience—that thing of kiss your kids goodbye. Them in the morning, you're going to work. You're coming home. You don't know if this COVID thing is going to be happening, and and so there's that unknown, that sense of helplessness, that sense of horror or terror as it spreads out. We need to have a human populace that's aware, like you said, of I am not my thoughts. I'm bigger than my mind. What is that? And as we we start to have this, I just love having this dialogue. I love the opportunity of being able to help people. Like a lot of veterans come back, they don't know, what am I going to do? I'm used to being part of this thing that's bigger than me that is that I'm getting respected for that I'm putting my life on the line it's very meaningful I have a purpose and then I come back to the civilian world and I don't have that I don't understand what that is what that looks like how I t- touch base with that how I engage with that this is what it can be
1: There's really something to be said about the relationship to life itself and fostering the relationship to something bigger as very oriented and experiential inside of nature and inside of connecting with other people. Because what happens when we connect in the military is that all the layers that get in the way of feeling the connection and feeling that, that kind of separation when you're in a combat environment, many of those layers kind of disappear because it all just doesn't matter. Like how many times have you interacted with people? Well, I, So I've interacted with lots of people around the topic of Black Lives Matter and white supremacy. And often warriors will say to me, look, it's only green in the military, man. We don't we don't interact with that stuff. And to a sense, I think they're right. Like, I remember being in convoys and it did not matter that the guy in the turret was, you know, from some podunk town. He had like four teeth and he could barely pronounce anything. He was trusted by his men. So I trusted him. I didn't care what he looked like or where he was from or what his education was. There was another guy who was, you know, dark as night, but he had a smile and he was fun to be around. And who cared? It, right. didn't, it didn't fucking matter. All that mattered was that they were proficient and professional. So you got to not just see that intellectually, but you got to really experience it. So that was just, that was just a really kind of nice thing. All those layers, right? Those layers were gone. Yeah. in civil society a lot of those layers come roaring back right I mean roaring back and so what you're contending with in civil society are all these layers right now what happens when you start to break these layers apart and nature nature is without layers the only difference between me and my dog is my dog doesn't have an identity right <laughs> my dog's my do- dog's identity is his central nervous system it's not his name's marley this is his past this is his future these are all his expectations none of that (laughs) the only difference between me and my dog is i have an identity and Mm. i have a processor that he doesn't have we both share the meat and we both we both share the limbic Mm. he doesn't have prefrontal cortex Mm. he can't do big picture stuff so he can't have an identity he can't have a meat right so what happens when the practice becomes actualized and becomes lived is that all the layers become choice. So you can choose whether or not to hold on to these layers. Now, the thing about it is tricky is that the layers aren't like a thought layer and a body layer. It's everything is interconnected. We just have to, we have to break it down by virtue of language. Like we have to share it. We have to talk about it some way. So we break it down into pieces to make it more understandable. But what really is the case is that every thought you have is showing up in your body. Everything you feel can be turned into a thought. So when I say break the layers apart, it's not as simple as just not having that thought anymore. Literally going into all the things that make up your identity, that make up yourself, and slowly and strategically making the choice, is this authentic to me does this serve me in a way that's meaningful and as you continue down this path what you'll see is that nature nature arguably another expression of what i believe is kind of the divine spark within all human beings nature affords an opportunity to study those layers to see how they connect and to see that you are designed to blend in in ways that are joyous and meaningful and fulfilling Already. It's already there. It's just that there's so many layers that you've got to learn to armor down from and then choose what to bring forth as the best version of yourself. But it's already there. That's the important key to kind of remember.
0: Amazing. I always on the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why with my phenomenal guests. I would just like to run through these six quick questions if you're down to do it. Yeah, yeah, fire away. All right. Who are you thankful for today?
1: My dad. I'm really, I'm really, really thankful for my dad. My dad has shown me what vulnerability looks like and shown me kind of foundations to pay attention to, pay attention to in order to be kind of sturdy in the face of really big challenges and be vulnerable at the same time.
0: And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today?
1: I'm thankful that I'm not afraid to be vulnerable like just uh, one of the things that really shook me yesterday was I was interacting with my father in a professional way. I was interacting with some other people, not just my dad in perfect. Oh yeah. And, and both actually two people I was interacting with in, in a professional way. And I, and I recognized their vulnerability and I felt a deep sense of love and appreciation for them. So I'm very thankful for my new kind of wholesome relationship to vulnerability as opposed to in the past where vulnerability was like, right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And how do you fuel the fire within you?
1: Stuff like this, like connecting to other people and, and doing so in a meaningful way. And so what I've experienced over this past hour has been just openness and just like, just whatever is within me is coming out. And that just, it just feels very real. It feels worth being alive for, and it feels very motivating. And so you have been incredibly motivating in this conversation, how well you've been listening. And that really fuels me. The Mm -hmm. fact that we're sharing this with others, that really fuels me.
0: I'm honored by that. What is one thing adversity taught you to value?
1: Your best and your worst come out through adversity. And so adversity is really, is really more of an opportunity to kind of evolve than something to be avoided.
0: And what are you doing today? You may have never thought you could.
1: I am exploring uh, an aspect of my relationship with my wife that I think I have not interacted with as skillfully as I could. And it, and I won't go into details, but there's, a, there's been a, I've been relating to a certain aspect of being married from a position that I no longer think is valuable. And it's actually something that I never really noticed before. And I'm now starting to kind of see it. And so there's, a, there's an aspect of becoming even closer to my wife that's starting to present itself in a way that I never noticed. Before.
0: Ben, how can people learn more about you and your amazing work?
1: all over social media so uh, google armor down and you'll easily find our facebook page the website is armordown.com, and that'll take you straight to our meditation cushions youtube there's armor down channel on youtube so yeah linkedin just just google armor down and decide where where you want to interact
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was good all those links will be below thank you everybody for listening ben thank you so much for your time